The final paper in this overview panel is about post-Stalinist sources and is by Alessandro Iandolo of St Anthony's College, Oxford. The paper is entitled, Using 1950s to 1960s Sources, The Case of Soviet Policy in West Africa. I'm going to talk about Soviet sources for the Khrushchev era, but I mean, uh, my topic is actually um, Soviet policy in West Africa from 57 to 64. It's foreign policy analysis about the USSR in Ghana, in Guinea and in Mali. Um, the thesis focuses obviously on policy and policy making, so I'm not sure how many people in the audience will be interested in that. I'll try to be as generic as possible, but I mean, um, the first problem I had, uh, and whoever has the crazy idea of studying um, diplomatic history uh, for the Soviet Union, is who made policy and foreign policy. Uh, the answer is very easy, I mean, it's Moscow, so you need the party perspective, and that's one of the archives <clears throat> I'm going to talk about today, and a state perspective, and that's the other archive I'm going to talk about today. And both of them are mainly, but not exclusively, used for political history, um, especially in Ghani, you would find a lot of sources for many other uh, topics. Um, the first archive is uh, Rgani, uh, which is the Russian archive of contemporary history, uh, and it's a party archive. It holds, in theory, all documents produced by the CPSU from Stalin's death up until 1991. So there you could find uh, party congresses, central committee <coughs> plenums, uh, meetings of the presidium, which is <coughs> how the Politburo was known at the time, uh, files from the central committee secretariat, and files from all the committees, subcommittees and uh, departments of the CPSU. Now this is all very exciting, uh, but the problem is that uh, what can you actually see next to nothing? Um, Phones 1 to 4 are closed, not accessible. Uh, 1 and 2, uh, plenums and uh, party congresses, are partially available in the West, including the British Library, for example, uh, whereas phones 3 and 4 are totally closed. The only way to get a glimpse of the documents is through uh, Russian collections, like the ones we have on the table, uh, which obviously, I mean, do provide a useful way of getting to see something. Uh, what's left in Moscow from the party point of view? Uh, you have to work with party departments, with the committees and the subcommittees. This can seem very frustrating, and it, it is, uh, but I mean, in Mirkani, you have some very interesting fonts. Um, I will very briefly describe 5, 10 and 11, which are the ones I use uh, more than others. Um, Fond 5 has files for the Committee for Propaganda, Ideology and Foreign Conducts, which broadly meant conducts with foreign parties. It has a very wide scope, surprisingly wide in my opinion, and it's a very useful fond. Um, fond 10 has files for the International Department for Relations with the Communist ruling Communist parties, which mainly meant parties in Eastern Europe. Um, fond 11 in has, in theory, the files from the International Department for Relations with non-ruling parties, so Western Europe, Third World, wherever. Uh, the problem is that this one is largely closed, uh, but some files are available and they're very nice, so do have a look at it. Um, problem in Ghani is what to look for. Um, first of all, bear in mind that Departments and subcommittees were important bodies for policy, uh, so part of the frustration goes away. They were formed and usually headed by influential presidium members. Uh, 
they provided uh, reports on specific tasks uh, to the Central Committee and the Presidium, so they were extremely useful for policy, um, and actually even uh, policy proposal themselves. Uh, even more interesting are the reports uh, the subcommittees received from other Soviet bodies, such as, for example, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the Ministry of Internal Affairs, the KGB, and other uh, Soviet agencies. I found them extremely useful uh, because they provide a way of um, getting to see how these other Soviet institutions or agencies worked. Uh, and many of them are very difficult to penetrate. And the KGB is the, is the classic example, especially for anything connected to foreign policy. Um, this is all very good, uh, but Argani has, in my opinion, uh, a huge problem, uh, a pitfall, I called it, uh, which is obviously that only a small part of the collection is open uh, at the present time, and most of the files um, are from departments or committees or other kind of organizations that dealt with propaganda and or ideology, broadly speaking. This leads to a bias um, because it does not mean that ideology is that important for policy only because you're seeing a lot of stuff about ideology because that's the only thing that's open in the archive. I think Ghani only about 10% of the collection is currently open, so it's an extremely partial picture. Um, so do be careful not to fall in the trap because stressing too much the role of propaganda or in general ideology can be very misleading as I myself found out in, uh, in Moscow about their relations with some West African states um, very recently. So be very careful about that. So that's for the perspective from the point of view uh, of the Soviet party and we now move on to uh, the state. Um, in my case, state means the archive, uh, the foreign policy archive, the archive of the foreign policy of the Russian Federation, which is, uh, holds all records produced by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, the MIT, since 1917. So it's strictly only Soviet sources. There is another branch of the archive which has sources for the revolutionary period, which is actually easier to access. So uh, that's good if anybody's interested in that. Uh, there you will find reports from members diplomatic correspondence, both public and uh, confidential, uh, copies of treaties, um, foreign policy analysis done by the analytical departments of the MIT, and reports to the Central Committee, uh, which are actually the most important thing you can find. Uh, good news is that, in principle, once you obtain access to the archive, which might take a while, uh, but once you obtain security clearance, everything can be seen, everything they have. Uh, again, this seems very exciting. The problem is that the archives is not very easy to use. Uh, the main problem is that they have no opposite, no guides, no particularly, nothing of that. Uh, you have to explain your topic to the reading room personnel and possibly to the archivists themselves, like the people who actually work in the room where the documents are kept, and have faith in them. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there's very little you can do. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they're usually okay, though. They're usually okay. Like, they're very competent and they know what they're looking for because, as John said, there's a lot of interest in Russia about high politics and foreign relations and the Cold War. So, they really know what they're looking for. It's, it's less of a problem than it might seem. Uh, the archive is organized in a fairly straightforward way. Uh, you have one font for each country the Soviet Union had relations with, uh, 
which is called Referentura Po, the name of the country. Obviously, in my case, Ghana, for example, it's font 573. And slightly confusing is the way in which the font itself is organized, uh, because it's divided into two parts. Uh, you have one that has the documents that were produced in the country, uh, usually by the Soviet embassy or by any other Soviet organization that happened to be there. And you have another font, which has the same number, but at zero at the beginning, uh, that instead has the documents produced in Moscow by the meat, usually based on what they received uh, from the country. Uh, be very careful and specify clearly that you want to see both. Once you've made this clear, they'll give them to you without problems, but do specify that you, you want to see both. Um, what to expect from the archive? In general, the level of analysis of Soviet diplomatic personnel was extremely low. Uh, there was a lot of simple reporting of events from the country, uh, which they called a chronicle of events, which very often just turns out to be literally cuttings from the local press translated into Russian. So you have absolutely no reason to look at that, just look at the original newspapers and magazines which are available in libraries. Um, this is a problem, uh, and the only solution is trying to be as specific as possible with your topic. So, in a way, it's quite the opposite of what you were saying. I mean, you, you have to be extremely clear that that's the aspect you're interested in uh, researching and the documents you want to see have to do with that. Um, also, learn from what you see. Uh, you'll spend the couple, first couple of days there seeing uh, the whole, like, you know, all the possible kinds of documents that they have. So be quick in understanding which kind is useful for you, which kind instead is completely useful, and tell it to the archivist so that the next time you will only get documents of the useful kind and not of the useless one. Um, some general tips about the archive and resource in general. Many collections of documents have been published over the year, uh, both in Soviet times and post-Soviets. Uh, to look out for them, they provide an initial um, useful selection of documents about diplomacy. Uh, there are many, many of them about specific countries or a group of countries. I've listed a couple I've used, I've used in the past. Um, even more useful uh, is the Russian literature, and not because it's particularly good. Um, I mean, there are some good things, there are some bad things, but uh, again, the level of analysis is general very low, uh, which means that often Russian historians just cite very large extracts from the documents, uh, which in many cases are not accessible today. So that's your only way of getting to see what the Soviet actually wrote at the time. And then, yeah, uh, it's fundamental to have a look at the guide to the archive uh, prepared by Mary Olson, she's a Norwegian researcher. It's available online. Um, it's a very detailed uh, description of the archive. It's slightly out of date because it was prepared a few years ago. Um, but What's really useful in it is that um, she gives the um, basic structure of the archive, how the single fonts in general are organized, so that when you go there, you can have an idea of exactly like asking for exact documents um, to the people uh, in the reading room. So it's, it really is a must read. Um, finally, I mean, the big problem about uh, working on uh, Soviet political history, Soviet diplomatical history, is lack of sources. Uh, I mean, what can you do? Uh, first of all, change your topic, <laughs> study something else. <laughs> uh, 
if it's too late for that, uh, then I mean, bear in mind that very little is available in Russia today, especially for political diplomatic issues, because I mean, they still tend to be associated with potentially dangerous things and security threats, even though, I mean, there, yeah, there is absolutely no grounding for that. But I mean, you have. Uh, there's nothing you can do, you have to accept it. Um, also, archives in former Soviet republics, such as Ukraine and Latvia, are not useful at all, although they're in general more accessible than archives in Russia. The problem is that only Moscow made policy, uh, unless, of course, you're studying, you happen to study a former, another former Soviet republic. Um, so you'll have to go to Moscow, there's no way out. Um, archives in the West do offer um, some useful sources, especially in terms of reports on Soviet activities. There's a lot of bias, some of them are not very good. Take them with a huge pinch of salt, but I mean, do have a look at them. Um, obviously the Americans, uh, the British as well, and also the French, depending on which area of the world you're studying and you're interested. And finally, my personal advice is to have a look at sources from the other side of the relationship. If you're studying uh, Soviet relations with one specific country, obviously do have a look at the sources from that country. Uh, they will provide a lot of useful insights in the worst possible case, translation of Russian documents, which in my case are always welcome. Uh, in the best possible case, you will find um, correspondence, documents, reports that will shed light on, for example, meetings uh, that otherwise are impossible to track down in the Soviet archives because the documents are either not there or they will not give them to you. That's my uh, last piece of advice and I'm done.